Okay. Before I open up the questions, I'll again recommend actually two books to you. Yes, it, let's see, I show this to JP. He's like, that looks like it was written in the 70s. Does anything good come out of the 70s? Yes. Yes. Actually, uh, actually, this was written in 95. This is a Walt Kaiser, the Messiah in the Old Testament. Quite readable. You don't need to know Hebrew to read this. And Kaiser is really strong in this topic. And uh, I recommend this. She's been very helpful. Um, something a little even more devotional um, by my old Greek professor, Will Varner, who actually has COVID right now. Um, the Messiah revealed, rejected, and received. So this is much more of a text-by-text, messianic text in the Old Testament. This does some of that, and then it jumps to the New Testament. This is more a book. This, this is a little more devotional. This, both are quite accessible. You could read either one of these, but they, they've been very helpful. Um, I, if this is something you want to go further with, I recommend them to you. I got plenty of places we can go, but before I go down my rabbit holes, any questions? Did I miss any blanks, or did you get all the blanks? Okay. You didn't get them all. Which one did you miss? 2B, 2 and 3. He will rule and judge the world. He is greater than David. Okay. Okay. Any questions from this morning? And here we do need the microphone to go around because. Come on, Renee, what you got? I know, I know you well enough to know. You're being, she's being polite. She's letting others go first. Oh, JP. Oh, okay. So my question is, what did, does, um, what did early first century Bible study look like? Like you said, Hannah studied the her scriptures. Mary had um, that prayer in mind. You know, what did that look like in the first century? There weren't like floating copies of the Bible no. floating around. No, the the uh, on a side note, you've you've read "Amusing Ourselves to Death," right? Yes. Yeah, they're an oral culture, and so they're literate. But before the printing press, you don't have your own copy of the Torah or the Tanakh, and the Bible is there. My pastor's pen, which I just turned in this morning, is sort of a beginning of an introduction to Psalm 119. And so the longest chapter in the Bible was written to aid you in memorizing it. What does that suggest? (laughs) It suggests God expects many of us to be memorizing the longest chapter in the Bible. And if the longest, why not shorter ones? So they would gather, the scripture would be read. Um, and in some respects, it's actually more accurate to look at the text of the Bible more like a score of music. Very few people can read a score of music and hear the music in their head, but the score of music is sufficient. The people who know how to play instruments, it can recreate the music. Um, and that seems to be the idea, um, so that the author of Hebrews can speak what the Holy Spirit says. And the implication is, yeah, when you read God's word, God's talking audibly as you become the orchestra recreating the speech. Um, So they would gather together. They would read large chunks of the Bible. So Moses gathers Israel together, and he read the book of the law, which at least is Deuteronomy, quite possibly the entire Pentateuch. So on the one hand, these are people who are accustomed to lengthy Bible readings, lengthy Bible readings. And they'd read the book of the law, and then the Levites interspersed to give the people the sense, and then they'd explain it. I mean, so this is like an all-day event. 
And they're in the middle of the Mesopotamia in the Middle East without AC, without comfy chairs. And this, so on the one hand, you've got people who their attention span is far, far greater than our, now this, now this, now this. They're used to hearing things, and they're used to committing to memory what they hear. Um, they are, they're able to, to remember things. I mean, some people I've seen scoff at how could these people who lived back in that day remember, in the Gospels when you've got long extended quotes, it's like, dude, you don't understand. P- people living back then, their ability to remember things. I mean, um, a, a really helpful book on this topic is Amusing Ourselves to Death by um, Neil Postman. And even though he's not a Christian, I don't think he is, he has respect for real Christianity, but he talks about the different traits that associate themselves with a different um, primary means of communication. So in an oral culture has different set of skills and different things that are valued than a written culture. And an image culture, TV, internet culture, is going to have different skills as well. And one of the things that an oral culture is going to value and prize is memory and the, ac- the accumulation of proverbs and wisdom. So in Kings, when it's celebrating King Solomon, he had over 3,000 proverbs at his lips. Well, in an oral culture, that's a smart guy. You'd go to the elders, you'd go to the city gates, you had a dispute, and they'd bring out proverbs that everyone recognized they were self-evidently wise. They'd bring out six, seven, or eight that might apply to the situation. They'd render judgment, and then everyone present could see, oh, yeah, that was a fair rendering. Well, here's a king with 3,000 proverbs at his fingertips. Nowadays, that's just sort of like, you know, curiosity. Yeah, I mean, you might go hear the guy who memorized the book of John, but you're not likely to think, I got a big problem. Who... Who's memorized John? I want to know what he thinks. That's not the way we value things. Because with a written culture, we can just jump to any page we want. So you've got the skills of an oral culture, people who are trained to listen, trained to memorize, and trained to meditate. Because they can't just read and reread and read. So they've got to grab as much as they can when it's read, and then having grabbed it, they're going to chew on it. And these people are evidencing they do that. The Pharisees, as best as we can tell, had memorized the entire Old Testament plus a body of rabbinic literature nearly as long. So that's sort of par for the course for... And, these, and, and the Pharisees are not professionals. The Pharisee movement was the grassroots movement. The Sadducees are the professional priests in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are just, you know, um, self-appointed religious leaders in the community. And um, they were able to do that. So their, their, their ability to memorize, I mean, even just take your cues at, to pick any New Testament book and read it asking the question, how much of the Old Testament does the author assume I know? How many quotes and references does he make? It's challenging when you realize he's writing that to people who like the book, just go to Romans where Paul confesses they don't have an apostolic foundation. Now, they, they may well be proselytes and Jews, who the church at Rome is probably founded through Jews returning home from Pentecost. And so we can grant they know their Old Testament, but still, Paul's writing to the church at large, and the number of Old Testament citations he makes that he expects them to track with, that's, we, we've got all of this wealth of books and electronic stuff, and we don't know our Bible nearly as well. I mean, remotely nearly as well. Just familiarity with the Old Testament as first century, uh, the first century church did. So I'd start by saying, just read your New Testament and understand what the assumption is for Bible competency. And 
start there. So if you do that, Hannah and Mary aren't knowing any more than what Paul assumes the Colossians know or the Ephesians know or any other group. We're the dullards. We're the ones lagging behind. So internally, if you just base on what are the expectations of the reader knowing, it's pretty high. But when you don't have TV and the internet, you've got long attention spans, and you've got walking everywhere, it gives all sorts of room and place for people to think and meditate. I don't have a free moment. I get a new bing, and I got a new text or a new email. or you know. And so my life is a much more fast-paced in some degrees than theirs were, and that cuts out those types of things. Is that... He doesn't, well, Nicodemus doesn't believe. Jesus says, you don't believe. Why does he go to weird pagan ideas of a second birth being physical? And he should be steeped in the Old Testament. He, he is steeped in the Old Testament. I think there's two takes on that. I know um, MacArthur thinks Nicodemus fully tracks with Jesus. And is in essence saying, you expect someone this far along to start over on a new track? I don't, you have to ask Nicodemus, which since, well, no, actually he ends up, you'll be able to ask him here. I forget, he ends better than he begins. I I can't fully explain to you why Nicodemus, John is highlighting Nicodemus' ignorance, but the whole point is you should have known this. Um, Jesus is basically, when he says you must be born again, in essence saying it's what, what Ezekiel talked about, that's here now. I'll cleanse you with water, and I'll give you my spirit, and I'll take your heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, right? Ezekiel 34 or 36? Where's Mitchell when I need him? Mitchell would, Mitchell would know. Um, and Jesus is in essence saying it's time for that. And Nicodemus is like, what? I mean, or Nicodemus, the other possibility is Nicodemus is fully tracking with him and basically saying no. What? Yeah, you should probably have the microphone, JP. For those of you who are listening online, <laughs> I've been having a conversation with myself. <laughs> so that's why I think Nicodemus would be tracking just because, I mean, Jesus says he's the foremost teacher. Yeah. You know, if Mary could um, dredge up so much knowledge of the Old Testament, the foremost teacher of Israel should surely be able to yeah. kind of track with Jesus. So... The other, the other possibility is Nicodemus isn't taking Jesus seriously enough to, to bother making the connections. That's, I, I, I'm going to probably, well, not probably, I'm pretty confident the next gospel I do will be John, so you, if you wait a few years. Well, you're asking me to explain why an unbeliever at the time makes the wrong answer, and I don't know how well I can answer that question for you. Or how well I'm supposed to be able to answer that. I think the point of the text is, this is the foremost teacher in Israel, and he bungles it. Right? right? I mean, um, but, but the point of Jesus' rebuke is he should, Jesus expects he should have known. This wasn't secret, hidden knowledge. And there are some things that Paul says are mysteries. You couldn't have figured that out. Um, okay. Yes. Oh! <laughs> All sorts of people cutting in front of you. Well, I would... I'm okay. just thinking yeah. that maybe 
along that line, like all the Pharisees, they all knew the Old Testament. They all knew what the Messiah looked like. They all knew what the signs were. They just didn't want to believe that it was Jesus because where he came from, he was, you know, born and, and all that. And they just were like, this can't be him. He's just a, a human. So I right. think that. Well, if you think, yeah, if you think back to Mitchell's sermon from a few months ago, if, if, if you take the entire chunk as one unit, so I would take the end of two. While Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but he for himself did not entrust himself to them, for he knew every man, he knew it was in man, he needed no one to testify concerning man. Now there came a man of the Pharisees. I think that's the introduction for Nicodemus. There's a group of people who believe in Jesus, in a sense, and yet Jesus doesn't want anything to do with them, and here's your person showing up. And guess what? We saw signs. No one can do the signs you do unless God's with them. Oh, look, Nicodemus saw some signs, right? I mean, it's working pretty well. If that's the case, then the conclusion of that section is Mitchell's text. This is the judgment. Lights come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil things hates the light. If that's true, then that's the explanation for Nicodemus. I don't want to go where you're leading, Jesus. I hate your light. In other words, he's not dealing honestly with him. He's not dealing sincerely with him. His, which could suggest then there's some willful ignorance and willful tripping up. You're just saying stupid things. Oh, oh good grief. Okay. So, thinking back to the signs that they would have seen in John there, you've got the wine and then the clearing of the temple. Those are the only two signs? But he what? references, there's internal evidence within, see, this is, okay, you get me ahead on John. That's fine. If you do an internal inductive study, John assumes you've already heard the gospel story. Okay. Give you some examples. This is before John was arrested. Where in John's gospel does the arrest of John the Baptist take place? Nowhere. John assumes you know John the Baptist got arrested. He introduces, how does he introduce Andrew? He's Peter's brother. Who's Peter? We'll find out in two verses. But he introduces Andrew as Simon Peter's brother. No, he's assuming you've heard this material. And the fact that John is so... Okay, so the three other synoptic Gospels, we call them synoptics because about 80% of the material lines up. Only about 20% of John's material lines up with them. And when you consider that's largely the passion, it, I think, helps explain how John is able to pick things that were not covered by the other Gospels. If that's the case, then when he talks about many other signs Jesus did, yeah, I know about those. I've read those. Yeah, um, but isn't it talking about what Nicodemus has seen? Yes, when he was in Jerusalem. So, do you, so there's a massive time gap then between those yes. two. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> you're saying Nicodemus saw, for example, the feeding of the 5,000 or... The feeding of 5,000 would come a fair bit later, but I'd say potentially the healing, uh, healing of... What Luke starts out, he just healed everybody everywhere. So he, Jesus is doing miracles in Jerusalem that John does not record. Because even the, 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 uh, the water to wine isn't in Jerusalem. Um, it's in Capernaum, right? Um, so there's no, there's no reference to him doing any signs in Jerusalem other than the reference when he was in Jerusalem and he believed when they saw the signs he was doing. So all John tells us, apparently he was doing signs in Jerusalem. We don't know what any of them were, which is not unusual for John as well. Interestingly, there's a number of times where we show up, Jesus has been teaching. We have no idea what he was teaching. It's only after the fact that we jump in. So like John 7, he stood up in the crowd and began teaching. And then we get this discussion about the authority by which he teaches. Well, what was he teaching? I don't know. What John wants us to look at is, who are you to teach? 
Oh, I'll tell you how, who I am to teach. So that's not unusual for John to reference things. But wouldn't it make more yeah, yeah. sense that the antecedent is the clearing of the temple? I mean, you just get that, and then you get this discussion of Nicodemus. Except they ask him, what sign do you give? So they're not seeing a sign. And even Jesus' disciples were told didn't get it. So nobody in the clearing of the temple in that moment is seeing a sign. Even the disciples are not seeing a sign. Um, the reader is seeing a sign. But I, I'd simply say we're assume, if you know the other stories, you know Jesus, especially early in his ministry, was just healing and doing miracles everywhere he was going. I mean, Luke's just, he healed them all. Whatever town he went into, he healed everybody. Um, now John's going to hand pick about three or four examples carefully moving forward but I, I think the assumption is more you know Jesus healed many many people and did many many signs and miracles so John gives us the first miracle the wedding at Cana but even saying first implies others yeah. right it's, it's what you got to say to the Catholics when they're like Mary is a perpetual virgin no if you have your firstborn <laughs> What does that imply? Um, so we can talk more. No, that's fine. Sorry. That's wrong. That's okay. Okay. Linda or Renee. Now it's Renee's turn. Mostly I just want to say thank you. Very well done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. And mine's not really a question. It's more of a back to your scepter and star <laughs> In, Pause before you. Do, I just got to tell you a quick, quick, quick story. Okay. We're driving home from the mall. How old was Abner? Oh, I have a question. So he's probably like two or three. And he's Dad. I have a question. Okay, Abner, what is it? So I had this dream last night, and there was this tree, and he just starts going off, and eventually, I'm like Abner, that's not a question. That's a statement. I'm not missing a beat, Dad. I have a statement. Uh, <laughs> So when you said this isn't a question, it just made me think of that. Sorry. Uh, go, go, go. Okay. So it in my notes, it said, uh, referred back to Revelation twenty two sixteen. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Yeah, morning star, which can be translated, um, I think the Latin translates that Lucifer, which is why... No, it's Satan is called Morning Star in one passage where we get Lucifer from. Jesus is called Morning Star. Most translators don't want to use Lucifer for both. But it's just Latin for, for light, I think, light bearer or something. I mean, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway. Um, no, absolutely. Jesus is called the bright morning star. But prophetically... What's his star? I'm not, I can't, it's more, it's just a punt. It's just, I'm not saying I can be certain, but Balaam's star and scepter could be what's referenced. There's not a lot of antecedent Old Testament star imagery. So when the wise men say we saw his star, there's not many options that's tracking back to Balaam would be one. I couldn't be certain. Against that hypothesis is the fact that Matthew really likes to make Old Testament prophecy clear. And so since Matthew doesn't, clearly connect that dot unless matthew expects simply saying his star connects the dot for us matthew usually this was to fulfill what was written in hosea this was written he isn't doing that so that's why i won't say any more than hey maybe this is even where that's getting to i wouldn't be more dogmatic than that so no and moving forward jesus is the one who's the bright morning star no absolutely but i'm thinking prophetically what's the deal with the star well at least we got one 
prophetic tri- line that talks about star and scepter. Okay. Yes. Which which one? Oh no no! But see, Revelation was written after the Magi came. All I'm saying is, when the Magi came with a star, if this is supposed to make any connection, it's got to make a connection with something that's come before. That's all I'm saying. So why did God see fit to give him a star? Possibly because of Balaam's prophecy. And I can't make any more statement than possibly. Will the New Testament take that picture and go further with it? Oh, absolutely. And John's revelation will absolutely. But his star and any Old Testament prophetic connection, I'm not familiar with many options other than Balaam. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Um, any other questions or thoughts? Oh, in the back. So... Uh, your sermon, you talked a lot about David and how these uh, prophecies are being fulfilled through, uh, in the context of the Davidic covenant. Um, and so I understand this question is kind of out of the scope of your, your sermon today, but in another sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, you would agree yeah. that David is also a shadow of Christ or a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Yes and no. Typology always bugs me. David is setting patterns in place, absolutely, qu- without question, that are going to be fulfilled in his greater son. The yeah. only reason I say I, 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 typology can be real weird because unless the New Testament makes a clear connection, I could make typology of anything. I, you just got to make comparisons. Is Joseph a type of Christ? Well, events in Joseph's life certainly follow a pattern of event, betrayal, deliverance that show up in the grand central story. Absolutely. I tend to think more along those lines, like in a movie foreshadowing, setting themes. Now, absolutely with David, you get a ton of that. So David is the inaugurated king while the usurper's raging around who won't reach out to strike him down. Just as Psalm 110, sit at my right hand to make your enemies a footstool. Jesus is inaugurated at the resurrection. Yet the God of this world is roaring around like a lion seeking whom he will. All these things are set up. Absolutely. David's major events in his life seem to set up patterns or foreshadow or be a type of, fine, Christ. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So that was just going to be my question. Uh, in, in which kind of, okay, how do I want to phrase this? Uh, how do these patterns in David's life uh, reflect the patterns that are going to be revealed in, in Jesus Christ, if you wanted oh, to maybe gotcha. go through that just a little more, because I think it's cool, and I'd just love to oh, see no, if it your is thoughts will expand and, my And the point thoughts. I was trying to make more this morning was actually the other way. I think so often we'll read these, like, Jesus, like, you gotta, you gotta get there. It, some passages, absolutely, like the one in Isaiah 9, his name will be Mighty God. Like, okay, we can just go straight to the Messiah with that one. But because clearly this is talking about Solomon in the first instance, it's got to press its way out there. You know what I mean? And so, oh, hey, guess what? David's son builds a house for God. Hey, guess what? Jesus is the house of God. He's the temple. I mean, so, yeah, these things move. One of the interesting things is, so Psalm 2, the compiler of the book of Psalms, this is one of those things that's, that's, that's cool. The ordering of the Psalms has information. There's information in the ordering. And one of them I think is really interesting. If you go to Psalm 2, right? Um, Which is, you know, David's reciting. And again, we can't just jump straight to Messiah because David's reciting what God said to him, right? I mean, you got to work your way there. And lest anyone reading Psalm 2 think this is hyperbolic speech of David and his kingdom, because David's kingdom was glorious, and David was a mighty man of war, and David subdued his enemies. He didn't have a global kingdom, but maybe this is just sort of over-the-top hyperbolic language. Lest anyone think that's the case, look at the psalm title of Psalm 3. Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. 
And about the next four or five psalms are all David saying, Help! And whoever arranged the Psalter appears to want to make that point. Lest anyone reading Psalm 2, is this about David only? No, David's the guy who ran from his son. David's not the one you'd be wise to not anger and kiss his hand. David's the one whose son usurped him for a little while. Um, so that's part of the information there. So you, you press this out. So you say, how does David become sort of a type of Christ? I think some of the clearest patterns are um, David's inaugurated rule while he um, isn't functionally ruling. So you got the titular king is Saul. Saul is the practice. He's living in a castle. Or, or he's the one who's living in a, where kings live. Probably wasn't a castle. Okay. Saul, Saul's got courtiers. Saul's got an army. Saul is the functional king. But who is the actual king? David. Will David, at at least two opportunities raise a chance, strike down Saul? No, he will not. And so David has a growing band of people who become loyal subjects to him, Saul's own son being chief, one of them. And so, I mean, you ever read the story of David? It's almost like Robin Hood, right? I mean, you've got this guy with his band of men, and they're living in the, the wasteland and the woods and stuff. And that is what we're living in right now. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand to make your enemies a footstool. So... So God the Father, in essence, is saying to Jesus, sit until it's time for you to bring your enemies under your, your, your feet. And so Jesus' return is when it's time for his enemies to be made his footstool. Right now, Jesus is the inaugurated king. He's inaugurated at the resurrection. And yet, there is a God of this world. And yet, Jesus has a growing band of followers in which he organizes his rule over, right? So that, those would be right there, big, big pieces, um, the problem I said I have with typology is just how far do you go with it? You can make all sorts of things line up. Now, thematically, David defeating the giant, but the, and then Jesus defeats the giant of death, and maybe David is a surprisingly, amazingly victorious fighter who takes down enemies that that you wouldn't think he had a chance against. Jesus ultimately defeats all of his enemies. Absolutely. I, I only get hesitant because eventually I'll end up with the Rahab's red cord was red for the blood of Jesus. And I, without the New Testament directing me, I've read enough to see people go crazy with this stuff. And so are there other points? I mean, you're asking me, how has David set up events in Jesus' life? I've given a five-minute answer, and I, could, I, not, I shouldn't, but I'm scratching the surface on it. Are there particular areas you wanted to go down or look at? or Is that, that start? Like David sets up this this kingdom that is called really the golden age of Israel, right? Yeah. And uh, it's you know the most secure Israel's ever gonna ever was. Its yeah. its borders are extended further than it's ever been mm-hmm. extended, and right. And then I think in a sense, right, this is going to be a picture of Christ, who who like as great as David was, Christ is greater because oh, yeah. his his kingdom has no borders right. and it's perfectly secure, right? And oh, so, yeah. but yeah, I, okay, you okay. even touched on a, an area that I, I mean I haven't even really thought of. That's exactly what I was. I was looking for. No, I just think it's really cool what that the age we're living in of an inaugurated king who's not functionally ruling is exactly what David ran around in for years as as the king in in, in what? You could also say many were not noble and we're the worthless fellows. Yes, many were not noble and we're the worthless fellows. Um, there you go. Okay. Yes, who's next? Saw the microphone. Who's next? I want to go a step further with Psalm 2. Um, so what's interesting 
and I'll, I'll commend to you. I'll try to post it on Facebook today. D.A. Carson um, does a fantastic message on this, and I'm just aping Carson. This is that one, Zeb, when we were driving to Louisville. There's a sense where he says that like 22 times. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, but um, Psalm 2, we were talking about this even last week. When it says, today I've begotten you, I do not believe is talking about the incarnation. I think it's talking about the resurrection. Um, and, and I'll try to briefly explain why I think that's talking about that. First step of the argument. Do you buy or does it make sense that for the Davidic king, it's true for Solomon when Solomon enters into his rule, when Solomon becomes king? And for every Davidic king after him, in what sense is God a father to him and is he a son? Well, when he, when he rules and if he's ruling rightly... That he's imitating his, you know, he's, he's a son of God like peacemakers are sons of God. You with me so far with that? It's not just saying that when Solomon's like six, God's saying, I like Solomon, I'll be a father to him. No, this is talking about as a king in his rule. So Psalm 2, in some sense, could rightly be an inauguration or coronation psalm. It'd be fitting to do that with. Okay. So Psalm 2 7 gets quoted three times in the New Testament to prove the following the resurrection. Superiority of, Jesus, superiority of Jesus over angels and the fact that Jesus didn't reach out and take his priesthood, it was given to him. When on the face of it, Psalm 2, 7 doesn't really appear to immediately speak about any of those things. And so Carson, in, in his message explaining this, I think puts forward the most plausible and I think the right answer, which is this. What event in Jesus' life is viewed at, and this is where he talks about there's a sense, there's a sense Jesus is born king. But there's another real sense in which Jesus' inauguration is through the death, burial, resurrection, where he ascends to the right hand of God and his throne, right? It's the passion, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, where he enters into his rule. So if you're looking at Psalm 2, 7, and in, in the first instance, David or Solomon or whoever is speaking, today I've begotten you, is referencing the day he enters into rule as a king, the corresponding today for Jesus is the resurrection and the ascension. If you work thinking that way, you can make sense of the three uses the New Testament does of this. So the first is in Acts 13. Acts 13, Paul, let me get there. Put another way, I think Psalm 2-7 is not talking about Christmas, it's talking about Easter. Acts 13, um, in verse 33, but let's go back a few verses before that. Um, let's go to verse 30. Paul's preaching at Antioch, Poseidon. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, the day I've begotten you. So Paul is connecting that, not with the birth of Christ, but with the resurrection. And I think if you understand the Psalm as, as, as tying, that for the first instance, when David or Solomon or whoever is, is, is referencing this, it's the day they became king. It's the day they began to rule. That's when God's promise that I'll be a father to me, I'll be a son to me, was played out in their life. And the 
Paul understands what, what enters, what ushers Jesus into his mediatorial reign is the death, burial, resurrection. Which is that Paul, I think it's about the only way you can make sense of Paul applying Psalm 2-7 to the resurrection. Otherwise, you scratch your head and go, what are you talking about? Okay, let's go to Hebrews for the other two examples. Um, Hebrews 1-5 isn't terribly challenging, but um, it's the second one in Hebrews that is. So in Hebrews 1-5, this verse is used to prove that Jesus is greater than angels. Um, <clears throat> verse 5. Um, let's go verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And I think, again, the logic here is, which angel did God ever bestow the honor of resurrecting him on? Is not the act of resurrection and ascension demonstrate the great superiority of Jesus over angels? But the really tough one, apart from this explanation, is in chapter um, Hebrews chapter 5. Now, in Hebrews 5, we're talking about the priesthood of Jesus. Um, so pick it up in verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to the act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to make sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one, and then, and no one takes this honor on himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So Aaron didn't raise his hand and say, I know, I'll, I'll be priest. And the one or two people who tried that didn't fare so well. When Saul tried to make the offering, he lost the dynasty. Um, which king was it who tried to do that? Is it who? The dynasty. the dynasty. When you're tired, it's the soft vowels of the English are so much easier to say. Privacy, dynasty. No, no, seriously. I, I had to teach through First Samuel. No, I had to teach through First Samuel here. And, you know, you have to say dynasty 23 times. And the soft vowels are so much easier. Dynasty, totally. I'm sold. Okay, Greg Sweet, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm sold on dynasty. Okay, okay. So, okay, okay, okay. Um, so look, so verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son that I have begotten you. Well, how on earth does Psalm 2-7 support the fact that Jesus didn't take his high priest that was given to him? Well, if Psalm 2-7 is talking about the resurrection, the father raised Jesus from the dead. And when does Jesus enter into his priestly ministry? When he ascends to the right hand of God, where he ever lives to intercede for us. So the resurrection is what ushers Jesus into his high priestly ministry. And Jesus, just as the priests were called by God, is raised by the Father. It supports that logic. If you understand Psalm 2-7, as it's cited by Paul and the author of Hebrews, as referring not to the incarnation, but the resurrection, it makes sense of those three uses. Um, I thought that's just cool, and I, and I give all the credit to D.A. Carson for doing the exegetical work. I just think... 
it's about the only way to make sense of it. It does make sense of it. Um, but which is why actually I've preached Psalm two before on Easter. Um, because once that clicked, I'm sold on it. Like this is, this is predicting the resurrection, not the birth. So the today is not today. I've begotten you in Bethlehem. No, today I've begotten you at the resurrection. Um, that's, I think, what it's talking about. Quite, any questions on that? That's one rabbit trail I want to go down. But before I get on others, I'll give you guys options for questions on that or anything else. Zeb has a question. As long as it's not on caloric graphs, we'll be good. Well, I'm pretty sure any uh, any caloric savings that you would have made saying dynasty over dynasty is lost by your little clever eyebrow raise every time you say it. So... <laughs> There's and, a sense. Which anyway, a jerk. Um, <laughs> um, sorry. Okay. Um, just on the on the issue of typology, yeah, um, yeah. the clearly we have in the New Testament you have um, Melchizedek being specifically singled out as a type of Christ. Yeah. Um, where and David and I, I'm with you that there are the the issue of typology can go it can go off the rails. Yeah. Eventually. Um, David, I would point out, though, that um, I think we have a very clear example of David as an overarching type of Christ, in addition to, like, yes, his the, the nature of his kingdom and yeah. the, his kingship. Uh, you also have, um, specifically in Ezekiel 34, um, the father speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. David um, shepherd them. Yes. So yeah. he says, yeah, um, I w- and I will set over them one shepherd, speaking of using this shepherd analogy for the for his people, I will rescue my flock, they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Jesus, obviously. Yeah. But what does he what is the name given here? And it is David. David. Yeah. Uh, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. Yeah. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So there is clearly there, I think, a, a very solid warrant to look generally at yeah. David as a type. Yeah. No, no, no. David is a, is a particularly unique case because of how many things line up and things were told. All, all I'm saying is I've seen enough with typology when you go off David and other tracks where it simply becomes a matter of if I can show a similarity between this Bible character and Jesus, guess what? They're a type of Christ. And I want to be cautious on saying that and I'm much more comfortable saying, hey, look, this theme in Joseph's life of being betrayed, but even through his betrayal, he saves his family and he shows love to them. And right. He, and I think I think that is. Yeah. I think that themes, is generally yeah. I think that is generally what most um, what most exegetes are saying when they bring up Joseph as a type of Christ yeah. or as um, Boaz as a type of Christ as the kinsman yeah. redeemer. Like yeah. there's there's these people that are in some way, here's a glimmer of something that's coming in a bigger, more glorious, more full sense. Yeah. Yeah. And all I'm saying is my preferred way of saying it with Joseph, I'd say is in this story of redemption and salvation, we see key plot points. They're going to show up again and again and again and finally show up in the central rescue redemption story. Um, that's just the way I prefer to 
deal with it. But certainly with David, absolutely, where Jesus can be identified almost as David. I mean, the other th- cool thing about the passages in Ezekiel is the Lord insists that he himself is going to do it as well. So part of it's like, I, I will shepherd my flock. So is it the Lord who's shepherding them or David? And the answer is? Yes. And exactly. that's actually, this is a, this is a, if you get uh, J-dubs knock out on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, this is a good passage to take to them because this is very clearly like, okay, there's another, like Yahweh is speaking, the Lord or Jehovah, if you want to use their, their terminology, he's speaking, David is going to be the, uh, the, this shepherd. And then, but wait, is it David? Is it Yahweh? Who's, who is it? And, like you said, yeah, the the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Any other thoughts or questions before I run with Ezekiel 34? Okay. This this is more of a this is a total tangent, but I want to do it. Go to John 9. I think I might have shown this before, but when we get to John, when I get to teaching through John, this has got to be the worst chapter division like I'm aware of. No, seriously. It is terrible. Um, John chapter 10 is an awful chapter division. Terrible. Um, whoever put the chapter divisions in probably broke chapter 10 of John off because you get the two shepherd discourses. Two different, Jesus is saying, I'm a good shepherd, right? Um, and you destroy, chapter 9 should go all the way through ten twenty one. Let me show you why I say that. In 1021, we come back to, so in 9, sorry, pause. I'm familiar with this. In 9, you get Jesus healing the man born blind. And John has set up a pattern, two or three times, where Jesus does a miracle, which sets up a discourse. So he heals the man by the pool, carries his mat, and that sets up the I and the Father on one discourse. And then Jesus makes, feeds the 5,000, and that sets up the I and the bread of life discourse. Here, Jesus does a sign of the miracle. And what you get is a new piece. Before the discourse, we get the Pharisees' discourse. They interrogate this guy. And what you're going to see is, I think, the contrast of how the would-be shepherds of Israel deal with this new baby sheep. Now Jesus is going to deal with them, right? And so they go to the, they go to the Pharisees and they interrogate him, and it ends with them de-synagoguing him. It's, as far as we can tell, John invents the word. They de-synagogue him, um, and... Uh, yeah, verse 34, they cast him out. They desynagogued him. And now we're going to see a different type of shepherd. Because back in Ezekiel, the whole Ezekiel passage is, God's, there are these shepherds who are devouring the flock. Shepherds who are devouring the flock. I mean, we should really just read the Ezekiel passage. But you can go read Ezekiel 34. Probably one of my favorite chapters. My favorite chapter in the Bible. It's right there. Um, love that chapter. And God is furious that these shepherds are devouring the sheep. And I think that's exactly what we see here. So, so the Pharisees, how do they deal with this guy? They deal with him roughly. They kick him out, right? Jesus, verse 35, heard that they had cast him out. They de-synagogued him. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Sir might be better translated Lord, but maybe, sir, who knows? Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, same word, sir, or Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Then Jesus gets angry. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? 
Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now notice, there's no break in the text. This is a terrible chapter division. There's no break in the text. He's still talking. And I think the whole point of the good shepherd metaphor is the contrast. Why have the pattern got broken? We see the bad shepherds at work, and then we see the good shepherd. Um, I truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man's a thief and a robber. You, no one hires you to watch the sheep. You're self-appointed shepherds and you're awful. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought them out of his own, he goes out before them and the sheep follow him. They know his voice. A stranger will not follow, but they will see, but they will flee from him. Is that another voice of a stranger? This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I am the door of the sheep. And this goes all the way down to verse um, 21, which ties it back to chapter 9. And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of one born blind? See, that's the inclusion that sets up the bracket and let you know deal with one event. And then notice how 22 starts at the time of the feast. We've jumped ahead to some unknown time. So this is all one, if I was outlining John, 9-1 through 10-21 is one sign, intermediary discourse of the bad shepherds, discourse of the good shepherd, one unit. And it's the worst chapter division there is. That's all there is to it. Um, But man, you see the heart of Jesus as the good shepherd, and you go and read Ezekiel 34, and you're like, yeah, that's my God. That's the same heart. That's the same passion. Um, and I, it's, you just jump into 10 without nine. You got to set up this contrast of here are the bad shepherds. Here's a good shepherd. He seeks out this one guy and he finishes bringing him to faith. If, you, if we were to study the whole thing, you'd see the guy's already figured some stuff out because as the Pharisees interrogate him, he makes, he makes better and better statements about Jesus. I don't know if he's a sinner. Can a sinner open the eyes? Of, he's a prophet. He, he hasn't quite got to Messiah yet, and Jesus gets in the rest of the way. This is the Son of Man. He starts worshiping him. Jesus finishes bringing this sheep into the fold, and then he's got something to say to the would-be shepherds who <laughs> are self-appointed shepherds and flee when the wolf comes, and he ain't happy. Anyway, last question. That's our bell telling us we've got like two or three minutes. Merry Christmas. <laughs>